I'm going to uh, today uh, preach not on uh, not on First Peter and not on the gospel passage, but we're going to look at a another passage today from Ephesians, Ephesians uh, chapter two, verses one to ten. Uh, given that it is Reformation Sunday today, I wanted to preach a passage that is especially germane and apropos to this uh, this important day. And so I'm going to read this again uh, to you, uh, Ephesians two, and then we'll say a prayer. And then we'll take a look at the passage before. So let's, let's read together. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were... By nature, the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray together. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you are near in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the presence of your Holy Spirit, and that your word to us today is true. We pray, O God, that you'd be gracious to us, that you would grant us understanding, that you grant us hearts that feel deeply for you, O God. We ask now that through the power of your Spirit, your word would be applied to us, that you would open the doors that you would open the prison gates, O oh God, that you'd set our shackles off our hands and feet, and, O oh God, that you'd give us the power to run the race with Jesus Christ ahead of us, O oh God. We ask it now, and may the words of my mouth, may the meditation of my heart, O oh God, be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, a very happy Reformation again to all of you, and uh, I understand for some of you that uh, this, this event, this historical event, may not be something that you spend a lot of time thinking about, uh, but I hope just in a little way today to, to bring its importance before you. Um, you know, with the, with the, uh, with the uh, advent of, of Halloween coming very, very quickly upon us, October 31st, I've always understood Reformation or Halloween to be more properly Reformation Day. And uh, with the, the topic of human merit in mind today, I consider it one of my lasting triumphs that my first son for his first Halloween was dressed up as, 
as Martin Luther. And uh, that's a very happy memory for me. He was a good Martin Luther as well. Uh, he was a good Martin Luther, and he still remains one, I think. Well, 500 years ago, a young monk uh, in Germany, after many years of labor and attempting to do his best to please God with all kinds of prayers and all kinds of fastings, all kinds of pilgrimages, all kinds of bodily punishment, even sleeping outside in the snow for nights on end. He came to the, the conclusion with his ears, pressed to the traditions of the church, all these teachings for centuries and centuries, which had become part of the warp and the woof of the, of the Christianity of his day, with his ear attuned to all these voices, he realized all of a sudden that he had been for his whole life hitherto straining, straining to hear the sound of the gospel. And there erupted in this young monk an insatiable appetite for a voice that had been simply silence, a joyful sound, a festal shout that announces good tidings, that announces glad news for the troubled soul and what this monk longed to hear in the midst of a culture that celebrated human achievement, that paraded human merit and human righteousness as a means to earning heaven in a culture uh, in the midst of a church where amidst so many other problems, salvation had become literally for sale so that a person was told that you could wash your sins away with silver and gold. Amidst all of this, what this man, Luther, longed to hear was an entirely different voice. He longed to hear the voice that says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and, and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And so this young monk, Martin Luther, between 1512 and 1517, began to pour himself over the scriptures while teaching theology at the university. And he, for 30 years, with very few absences, lectured on the, the New Testament and the Old Testament while being a priest at the church. And between these lectures, the Reformation exploded in Germany. And while he was soaking himself in the word, while Luther soaked himself in scripture, he found that he was no longer straining to hear the gospel. He was no longer straining to hear that glad sound, but it came to him loud and clear as if through a trumpet that the just shall live by faith. In his own words, we are not being, we're not made righteous by the doing of just deeds, but rather in becoming righteous people, we do just deeds. First, it is necessary that the person is changed and then the deeds will follow. Abel pleases God before his gift does. See, Luther realized all of a sudden that God's righteousness does not punish us, punish us for falling short of us, for, for falling short of it, but rather it saves us because we fall short of it. God's righteousness meets us in our utter inability to do anything that God's law demands. And so he clothes us with his own beauty, just like his beloved son. And so to try and make ourselves look any better, 
when God has dressed us like Christ to try through our own works, through our own good deeds, to trying to merit heaven, to add to what God has already done. As if somehow we could look as good or even better than Jesus Christ was for Martin Luther fundamentally impious. Luther came to the recognition that God's righteousness is pure gift. And more and more, Luther came to recognize that the Roman church was hiding God's word from God's people. And so on October 31st, 1517, Luther walked up to the castle church in Wittenberg and he took 95 theses, 95 arguments, and he nailed them to the castle church's door. And within a matter of weeks, these arguments that were advocating the righteousness of God as sheer gift, all these ideas had crisscrossed Europe and the whole of Europe was ablaze. And so nothing would be the same. So Luther began to, to um, proclaim the message of the gospel in such a way that uh, followers began to accumulate, and eventually in England, the Church of England began to recognize uh, the, very, the very same thing. It's very important for us today to recognize that Anglicanism is not a middle ground between the, uh, the Protestant Church and Rome. We are part of the Catholic Church, that's true, we're part of the church universal, but we protest against anything that is repugnant to the word of God. As our articles assert, we believe that Rome has not only erred in matters ceremonial, but Rome has erred in the very matters of faith itself. And so what we have today, this is just a little history lesson for you, what we have today is our classic Anglican formularies, those official uh, documents that define who we are as a church, the 39 articles, which are doctrinal statements, are doctrinal statements. The ordinal, ordinal, which is the guide for ordaining our ministers. The first and second book of homilies, which are the sermons written and recorded by our reformer bishops to teach us about the nature of Protestant Christianity. And the book of common prayer, which is the pattern of our, our public worship. All of these things are an enduring testimony to the strong Protestant convictions of our England's, uh, our bishop reformers. J.C. Ryle, the great uh, Bishop of Liverpool in the 19th century, wrote in his final Episcopal address, cling to the old Church of England, cling to its Bible, its prayer book, and its articles. Never forget that the principles of the Protestant Reformation made this country what she is, and let nothing ever tempt you to forsake them. Now what these reformers in the Anglican Church, whether it was, uh, or, or on the continent, whether it was Luther or Calvin, or Cranmer or Jewell in England, what they never tired of preaching was the message of grace. That God is gracious to me precisely when I can do nothing to earn his favor. That God's love and kindness rush to meet me at the very moment I'm so opposed to loving him in return, when I am in fact his enemy. And I want to think about this passage today with you in, in those terms. As Paul proclaims in our text today, uh, and you'll notice uh, the strength with which Paul affirms that there's not one thing we can do to earn God's salvation. For we, says Paul, all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul uses two synonymous terms here to drive the point home. Sin has killed in us anything that might be worthy of the name of life. 
Not a hint, he says. Not a trace of life towards God was left. This is what Calvin, by the way, means by total depravity. There is not a remnant in the human soul where true piety is practiced. Dead here in Paul's letter, Ephesians 2, means precisely what it's supposed to mean. It means dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. No life. No movement. All bones and rotten flesh. You were under the ground. And as we look around our contemporary world, sinful humanity seems so alive. We walk. We run. We laugh. We cry. We give birth. Well, Josh, you and I don't, but there are, our noble counterparts do. We, we dream. We explore. We express ourselves in incredible works of art. We, we sing and we play beautiful music that sends shivers down our spine. We build vast civilizations. We, we, we leave our planet. We stretch towards the stars. We yearn to make the world a better place so that the, the milk of loving kindness trickles all over the corners of our world. And yet in spite of all this activity, yet in spite of all this life, Paul says you are dead. You are dead. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Sin, he says, has killed humanity. We are mortal creatures, writes Calvin, not because we're going to die, but because we are dead already. And what Paul says to us in Ephesians 2 is that we are all born in this life fundamentally dead to God, no pulse that beats for him alone, no desire that he should reign and rule every corner of our existence, no natural longing for God to be God in our midst. We do not pant for him as the deer pants for the water, and certainly we do not by nature cry out, thy will be done and not my own. Instead, the natural rhetoric of the human soul is just like that line from the poet William Ernest Henley, I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my own soul. And so we can build a vast skyscraper reaching to the sky, and through incredible ingenuity, we can make a name for ourselves. As human beings, we can bind ourselves together in brotherly solidarity, and yet for all of this, we cannot love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. In fact, if you look at the Bible before you, you notice that Paul defines this spiritual death by the lodestar which the dead person follows which is the prince of the power of the air. It's the devil, it's Satan, the archetypal figure of rebellion against God. And so Paul says there is no neutral ground in this life. We belong to Christ. We heartily embrace the reign and the rule of God, or we follow the very one who taught our first parents to despise God's command. I mean, think about what Jesus said to the Jewish leaders in his day. Your father is who? Your father is the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. And so it really does not matter today what it is you're doing in this world. You can go around and champion the cause of justice, but if you have no love for God, then you are spreading a feast for the devil, for he will as soon consume a liberal soul as he will the most vile of sinners. We were dead, writes Paul. 
Now the thing about a dead person is that there's not an awful lot he can do. Poets have tried to make death very noble, right? The Lady of Shalott uh, floating down gracefully to a, a mournful Lancelot, but there is nothing whatsoever noble about death. A corpse is a grim and a terrible thing. A corpse doesn't act. A corpse doesn't rise. It doesn't respond. A corpse cannot do anything. Now listen, says Paul, when Christ saved you, when through the Holy Spirit he united you to himself so that everything that was his became yours, when he brought you to life and gave you the power to delight in God, when he did that, you were absolutely dead. There wasn't an ounce in your life that could cause you to act. It's a very unhelpful metaphor in the church, uh, in the contemporary church today. It goes something like this. The spiritually lost are like those who are drowning at sea. They're flailing about the water. They're wildly thrashing in an attempt to save their life. And once God appears and he offers his lifeline, once he casts this preserver into the water, it's then up for the man or the woman or the child to decide. God waits he hangs as, as, you know, everything's hanging in the balance. He waits upon the strength of the almighty human decision. He waits to see if the struggling soul will finally condescend to accept God's help. But this is exactly to ignore what Paul is saying to us today in Ephesians 2 about God's grace. You, says Paul, were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were not struggling to stay afloat. You weren't looking for any help. You weren't thrashing about. No, you weren't moving at all, for you had drowned. And you were at the bottom. No thought, no will, no desire for God, no nothing. God did not send you a lifeline. God dove into the deep of the water, grabbed your lifeless body, and took you up to be united to his Son. Because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God then made you alive in Jesus Christ. That is in the midst of being dead, God gave to you a new nature, one that can finally long for God to be God, one that can say yes to Jesus. And so it's critical today for us to realize that it's not that we say yes to the gospel, that we say yes to Christ in order to be born again. We need to be born again in order to say yes to Jesus Christ. God's saving grace doesn't depend upon us. God's saving grace cannot depend upon a dead man, for a dead man can offer nothing to God. In fact, Paul says, God determined to save you, and particularly you, long, long before you were born. He set his eyes on you. He chose to save you, writes Paul, when? Before the foundation of the world. Not because you were worthy, simply because he set his love upon you. Before one star was set in the sky, God said, I will save you. And he engraved your name on his hand. This, says Paul, is what grace is all about. I am alive in Christ, not because I had the moral wherewithal to say yes to Jesus, 
not because I was keen-sighted enough to recognize that I needed a savior, not because I had some innate spirituality that turned me to God. No, no, I was dead. I was rotting. I was all bones and putrefaction. I was absolutely lost. The devil was my captain. And I cherished his atheistic counsel, but then in the midst of that, in the midst of that state, something happened. Unexpected, I awoke and I could see that I was in a dungeon, filthy, and I was chained to the wall with no hope to get out. I pulled and strained, but even when I saw that faith was desirable, I still could not do it. It was still beyond my reach. And just then, that dark prison flamed with light. And in Wesley's words, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and I followed Christ. Now listen to what Calvin says. There is a great difference between needing God for salvation and needing God to do all. This is why historically the Protestant church, when it has stayed true to its foundations, has been so insistent on the doctrine of the justification by faith. You are saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing, faith included. It is all the gift of God. So then, writes Paul, it does not depend on human will. It does not depend on human exertion, but it depends on God who has mercy. And all these works we see in Ephesians 2 today, all these works that you will do in your life, all the good works that you will do, all the things that you will accomplish, the service that you will render your king, even these are not your own devising. For you, we read, are God's workmanship created for good works in Christ Jesus, which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And so it's not your good works that lead to your creation in Christ, but it's your creation in Christ that leads to all of your good works. First, says Luther, the tree, and then the fruit. And so today I want you to think with me what makes you to differ from your neighbor? What makes you to differ from the pleasure seeker, the drunkard, the tyrant, the criminal, the hardened atheist? Were you softer before God? Were you more discerning? Were you more inclined to God in any way? Is that why God chose you? Were the lost more determined to be lost than you? Were they harder? blinder or more sinfully obstinate? Why is it that God chose you? The only difference is grace. It is grace alone, writes Augustine, that separates the redeemed from the lost. In sheer mercy, before the foundation of time, God set his love upon you. And when you were utterly unable to respond, when you were utterly unable to respond to the gospel, God reached down and with his divine power, he quickened you in Christ so that you could say, I want God more than anything else. This is not you. 
This was never you. This, Paul says, is God's grace. And if there's anything in you today, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you find in your heart today something inside saying, I think that this is what I want, I find in my heart today something that's longing to be joined to God, then this is the grace of God at work in you, to which I bid you and urge you to respond today. Blessed is gone tomorrow. God's grace in work in us. In fact, as Jeremiah instructs us, the only boast we're to have is the boast that we know God's steadfast love. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Well, that's a hard word for today, isn't it? I teach at the university, and I, I see a lot of boasting in wisdom. It's our nature to, to preen ourselves for all of our cleverness. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Don't boast in your wisdom. Don't boast in your strength. Don't boast in anything that you have. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and that he knows me, that I am the Lord. If you boast, Boast in this, that the Lord is the one who loves justice and righteousness and steadfast love. And so we have great reason to be grateful today. We have great reason to be grateful today. We see very little, I think, what our salvation is all about on the best of days. We see all of this as through a dim mirror, as Paul says, but in the coming ages, God is going to reveal to us the ineffable riches of what all of this grace in Christ means to us. He's going to pull back the curtains and we will see finally the full picture and we will understand all the immeasurable glory of what he has done for us undeserving sinners in Christ. And we shall fall on our faces and we shall cry out, let us rejoice, let us exult, and let us give God the glory. And so church, today, let me encourage us to strive to be a reformed church indeed. That here, in this place, in this church, there may never be a straining to hear the gospel, that joyful sound, that festal shout that God delights to save sinners in Christ and salvation is of the Lord. And so now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and forever. Amen.